electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and here's what's ahead this hour with the Dow down 500 points. Another day of disappointing data as retail sales miss, homebuilder sentiment sinks. What is the real state of the economy right now? Are investors overestimating the strength and spending willingness of the U.S. consumer? We will ask. There is one area of the market that's been holding its breath, meantime, for Congress to act on the debt ceiling. If the stalemate we're seeing continues, one strategist says we could be in for financial consequences there that last a generation. Plus, not-so-wishful thinking, a roadblock for roadblocks, and honestly bad earnings. It's all coming up this hour, but let's start with the markets. Dom, right at session lows, here we are. We watched it together, right, Kelly? Just as Scott Wapner was handing the baton over to Kelly over here, we hit the session lows. Just for context, that was down 501 points or thereabouts, and that happened just in the last moment or so here. At the highs of the session, we were still down 125 points for the Dow. A lot of that has to do with some of the earnings reports that are out and, of course, what Kelly mentioned in terms of the retail sales. But the S&P is down one and a third percent. The Nasdaq Composite down one and a half percent. The real laggard here. So a decidedly down day. It's a tough day. It's a tough way to break a five day losing streak for some of these major indices. With regard to what the outperformers have been as of late, over the last month, the two best performing sectors in the S&P 500 have been financials, which are taking a bit of a hit today, and healthcare as well. That's holding up relatively well. One of the best performing sectors in a very down tape today. Consumer discretionary, meanwhile, the worst performing sector in the S&P in that one month period. So again, a lot of that dynamic playing out right now in healthcare, certainly a sector to watch. With regard to the earnings reports, better than expected numbers from both Walmart and Home Depot Different directions, though. Walmart, the focus has been on e-commerce, a little bit of a slowdown there. Still better than expected earnings, profits as well. They raised their forecast. Home Depot down about 4.5%, a real drag on the Dow right now. Still better than expected numbers. However, the sales at stores open for at least a year, tailing off a little below expectations, indicating perhaps that that do-it-yourself trade that we've seen during the pandemic, Kelly, is maybe losing a little steam. However... The people who did shop at Home Depot spent more money each time they went. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, just one thing to point out as we think this through here. So whether it's the taper, whether it's the kind of renewed spread of Delta here, you'd think stocks like Home Depot and Lowe's, if the biggest problem with them today is that they're having a reopening hangover, well, we're in an environment where we're now questioning the reopening. So it's interesting that they aren't getting more of a bid here. So you're telling me even the stocks that should benefit from this kind of environment aren't benefiting. And maybe that's because we're not going into full shutdown at home mode, but we're going into kind of a lose-lose where it's not the full pandemic plays, but it's not the reopening plays either. So how much have we talked about over the last several months, this confluence of higher inflation, raw materials costs, a little pullback in consumer spending because of the Delta variant and uncertainty around there. All of those are playing out in that Home Depot trade. The curious part will be whether or not we see that same thing or same theme or maybe even different commentary come out of Lowe's. Lowe's and Home Depot are two of the biggest losers right now in the consumer discretionary sector alongside Tesla. So if you look at Lowe's and Home Depot, will it tell us anything about whether or not that consumer spending picture is starting to weaken now that those government stimulus payments as, are not as much as part of the picture as possible. True. And by the way, that rising commodity costs, even though they've cooled off a bit, 
have made people a little bit more cautious. I know some of those home improvements that I've been thinking about have been put on hold until costs can come down. Yeah, and that's the stagflation that Peter Bookvar uh, would be talking about, where he says the inflation we're seeing is no longer helping even those areas where we've seen the most strength. All right, Dom, I'll let you go. We'll continue the discussion. Dom Chu, I appreciate it. Let's turn now to the past few days where we've seen these poor readings piling up. It started with consumer sentiment on Friday. Then it was Empire State Manufacturing yesterday. This morning, housing in terms of homebuilder sentiment and a big miss on retail sales. You can now add that to that list, showing a drop of more than 1% in July that was much higher than expectations. So is it time to taper the taper talk? Here's what Jeffrey's chief market strategist, Dave Zervos, told us just yesterday. I don't understand the rush. I don't understand why there's a rush when we're still playing with this Delta. We're hearing about Lambda. We're all kind of flying blind. There's a lot of you know, as Richard Curtin from Michigan wrote, um, you know, who's the chief economist there, wrote, I mean, there's a lot of emotional scarring in our consumer. And maybe the fragileness of that is, is a, little more, uh, a little more there than people think it really is. Joining me now is Diane Swank. She's chief economist at Grant Thornton. And Diane, again, the sort of ironic timing of all of this is it comes just as the Fed was signaling its intention to start tapering next month. So you know this institution very, very well. What do you think they're thinking right now? Well, I think what we're going to see from Jay Powell at the Jackson Hole keynote is him lay out a roadmap of what would tapering look like? What would we have to get to to get to tapering an announcement in September or later than that? I think one of the things the Fed is struggling with right now is that their supply chain disruptions have been greater than the demand disruptions. We are starting to see some weakness in demand. And this August sentiment data, as you said, was really horrific on the first two weeks of the month. And I am concerned about that. And so what I'll have to do is talk about the uncertainty. But as long as the disruptions to supply are greater than the disruptions to demand, you still have an inflation threat out there that the Fed needs to get sort of ahead of a bit, or at least address, and that but, means tapering by your end. But that is, the, that is the challenge they face right now. And, and the inflation threat itself is such an interesting talking point, because what's happening with Delta now, what's happening with the shutdowns in China that we're seeing in China slowing, by the way, could be a big part of the global sort of slowing this week, that's all going to potentially yes. make the supply challenges worse. It's going to possibly make cost uh, pressures worse. That doesn't mean that the Fed should be tightening monetary policy, right? I mean, that, that's not the kind of environment where you'd want to say, well, you know what, we're going to tighten financial conditions. No, if anything, that those high prices are deflationary. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's not deflationary, but it is a situation that you don't want the Fed hitting the brakes on if it causes more problems and spillover effects for those emerging markets. And I think that's where this gets into is, you know, how much, how, remember, the tapering is in response to the Fed's run-up in asset purchases that was to avoid a financial crisis layered on top of the COVID-related recession. The Fed stopped that from happening in March of 2020. Do we still need these purchases to prevent another financial crisis that's global in scope from morphing, it's morphing into that? And that's a really tough question for the Federal Reserve to weigh as we go into this. I don't think the tapering alone would take enough money out of the system to suppress demand as as well. But I do think it's a really tough call. I think yeah. the Fed is going to have a hard time sort of wading through and writing the roadmap on how they do these tapering, given the global situation. And China, like you said, it's the second largest economy out there. Yeah. And let's face it, 
chances are the data is actually worse than what they're saying. Oh, sure. And you have to wonder if their zero tolerance approach is still the, the way to manage through the rest of COVID. So at first it looked like that policy got it right. The U.S. was kind of muddling through in, in the worst way possible. Now you wonder if we're going to have to be living with this over and over again in months and years, you know, if zero tolerances can continue to work. But as a side note, Steve Leisman yesterday mentioned the fact that even if the Fed tapers, they will still be adding $660 billion potentially to their balance sheet, which is a, a huge amount. So I understand people go, this is insane yes. that we're even debating whether we should taper these purchases to a still very high number. I totally understand that. But we've watched these markets over the last five to eight years. Every time, you know, people think there's no way the market could still need da 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 from the Federal Reserve. Well, Usually it pushes the Fed to, as we saw in 2013, delay the September taper till December, as we saw in 2019, reverse course and say, you know what, those 2018 rate hikes, they were actually a mistake. Now we're going to cut rates a few times. You know, I, it, you just, you, you, we're going to have to watch the markets from here, but it, this feels a little familiar. Well, and to underscore your point, Kelly, and I agree with it, I mean, we've gotten used to a wall of liquidity provided by the Fed that protects the financial markets, and that's a good thing in March of 2020. Is it a good thing today? It's not clear. And I think that's something that is a longer term issue that the Fed is going to have to struggle with in terms of what does this really mean longer term? How does this what is how does this distort our economies longer mm-hmm. term? And that's hard because you don't want to pull anything out in the near term if the economy is, in fact, faltering. And I am worried about Delta. I'm already signed up for a booster, but that's because I've had cancer several times this year. Mm. So I'm on the list. All those people who are going to wait, it's still going to take time and they're going to be a lot more careful. I'm already cautious. So yeah. for me, it's you know sort of a non-issue. No, I understood. Understood. Yeah, it's going to be, whether it's just today's market declines or whether this is the beginning of a bigger move uh, to kind of push back on the Fed, I think we'll we'll just have to see. Diane, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for your time. Diane Swank is the chief economist at Grant Thornton. All right, so let's bring this back to your investments. Financials have been flat all summer. Energy and airlines are down as the value and reopening plays struggle. What will it take to reignite those trades? Or should investors just be looking to other parts of the market? Joining me now, Jeff Krumpelman is chief investment strategist and head of equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. And Chris Grisanti is chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. All right, Jeff, I know you've been pretty constructive on the market. So having heard what Diane and Dave and others were saying and looking at stocks today, what, what would your advice be to investors? Well, I, I think you want to stay the course. And I do think that the bull market remains intact when you look uh, over the, the longer term, the next 12 months. I think the uh, plethora of data uh, still tilts to the positive. We have gotten several positive employment uh, trend data. The uh, activity reports with regard to the service economy and uh, manufactured goods remain at high levels, albeit they, they've slowed. And I, I do think that the economy you know, has peaked and is likely to slow, but to still uh, healthy levels. So w- what advice would I give uh, to folks? I would not be surprised to see a correction or ongoing rotational moves that we've seen in these different sectors and from a growth and value standpoint, like We've seen so far this year with the cyclicals really coming out of the gate hot and Mm -hmm. then uh, cooling and growth now having the upper hand. So I would remain balanced and um, both from a sector standpoint and from a growth and value standpoint. And expect, have low expectations when you look out over the next quarter or so as we deal with some of these wall of issues that you're talking about. Sure. So I see. But remain invested. 
Yeah, stock like Boeing, probably the sort of biggest example of, of a reopening play in your portfolio. It's only at 4% year to date. But you also have names in healthcare and technology, Bristol-Myers, Aptiv, even GM uh, in that list. I'm not seeing a lot of financials here or energy plays otherwise. Chris, let me turn to you. Same question. Uh, the value growth debate is really just a way of trying to understand what the market is telling us about the economy. And as I mentioned, the value trade has not been working for the last couple of months. That's true, Kelly. And it's nice to be with you. And not actually my buddy Jeff again. What I think is happening is the bond market is saying, hey, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? And with our own eyes, we're seeing all of our portfolio companies either meeting or exceeding earnings. We're seeing GDP growing. This year, the U.S. economy will grow faster than the Chinese economy for the first time in a generation. So that's incompatible with a 1.3% 10-year bond. Now, I understand that we're working through some stuff right now. We're working through the Delta variant. We're working through the habit of investors to bet on low inflation and low growth. But I think that's going to be more and more in the rearview mirror. But Chris, and whether we taper in three months or, or six months, it's coming. So here's what I don't understand, though. If people say, don't believe the bond markets, they're distorted in part by the Fed, which I would right. love to believe that narrative. I would love to believe that narrative. But we have a scenario in which the Fed is saying it's going to start exiting the bond markets and bond yields have plunged by half a percent uh, percentage point over the past few months. That makes no sense. If they're distorted by the Fed being in the picture, the Fed's about to exit, then we should be starting at least to see that priced in and higher bond yields. It's going the other way. Well, I think a couple of things are happening, Kelly. But I think it's like the football with Charlie Brown. This has happened so many times and it gets taken away. I think we're finally at the place. We paid $5 trillion for this recovery. I think we ought to enjoy it. And I think it's going to be different. So when the Fed leaves, when Delta goes away, again, whether that's in two months or six months, it's, it's, we're going to be in a different place. And I'd want to be invested before we get there. But you are in Google, you're in Facebook, you're in Amazon. I mean, those are plays that should do better, I, I would think, in a sort of pandemic light environment. It's true. It's funny because I think the economy is going to be roaring ahead, but our portfolio would probably do relatively even better if it didn't. But but I got to tell you, this Internet advertising model is the best thing I've probably seen in my career. People who say <laughs> it's a nice business model, it's like saying Katie Ledecky is, is a decent swimmer. It, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. So, for example, YouTube will have more revenues next year than Netflix from its advertising. And, of course, YouTube doesn't pay for content. It's just a great business model, and there's nothing stopping it. All right, Jeff, I'll give you the last word here because you don't have uh, big tech in terms of the top recommendations I see right now. In terms of names, we do like, you know, innovation and we think you can find it outside of big tech. So, you know, within the consumer discretionary space, Aptiv, an auto supplier that is highly levered to the move towards electrification, the build out, the move from the internal combustion engine to electric vehicles and advanced driving systems and really make components of the electrical architecture and brain power of, of, of the vehicle itself, growing at one and a half times the industry in these robust end markets. And uh, we think that's a great play. And then within uh, technology itself, Twilio is a great example of a company highly levered to a move away from legacy communication networks mm -hmm. uh, to cloud-based, uh, very efficient, um, customized communication networks. So we think there's plenty of opportunity outside of uh, big tech and, um, yeah. again, would remain balanced. 
Yeah, and threading the needle here a little bit, because even as we're talking about today's declines, we're still coming off record highs for a market with the even as the value trade has kind of gone sideways. Guys, thank you. We'll leave it there. Jeff Krempelman, Chris Grisanti talking us through stocks today. We do appreciate it. Coming up, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood firing back at Michael Burry after the big short investor placed a big bet against one of her ETFs. After the break, we'll tell you what she's saying about Burry, who profited big from the subprime mortgage collapse. Plus, shares of the Honest Company are higher today, but they're down 60% since going public in May. That includes Friday's 30% drop after disappointing results. Can the company's celebrity co-founder help turn things around? And here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map as we watch the index down more than 400 points. Home Depot, Boeing, Dow, and Caterpillar are your biggest laggards today. United Health and Merck are helping keep it from steeper losses. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. ARK Invest Kathy Wood is firing back at Michael Burry after the big short investor bet against her flagship ARK Innovation ETF. Christina Partzinevelis is here with the latest and the back and forth. Christina. Yeah, you just don't get tech. That's pretty much the premise of Kathy Wood's rebuttal to billionaire investor Michael Burry. Wood is the star fund manager running ARK Investments, while Burry is known for his role shorting housing bonds prior to the financial crisis in 2008. He's also played by Christian Bale in The Big Short. In a filing release Monday, Burry disclosed a $31 million position against Wood's benchmark fund, ARK. ARK has $23 billion in investments. Its biggest holding is Tesla, followed by Teladoc and Roku. And on top of going after ARK directly, Burry also revealed that he was betting against Tesla to the tune of $731 million. Wood took to Twitter to defend her fund's investment strategy, saying, quote, I do not believe that he understands the fundamentals that are creating explosive growth and investment opportunities in the innovation space. But Burry isn't the only one betting the price of ARK will fall. Bears are circling. The volume of put options traded on the ETF, which means the right to sell or sell short ARC at a certain price, is rising. Short interest on that ETF is at a record high, 13% of the float right now. There's even a short ARC, or short ARC ETF that is awaiting approval from the SEC. But Wood is sticking to her funds, stating that the tech innovations she's targeting should transform the world in the next 10 years, Kelly. A short arc ETF. The Burry case is interesting because 
ARK-K is the type of ETF I would imagine has a pretty strong following amongst a lot of retail investors. The Tesla types, the Reddit crowd, whatever you want to say. But Burry himself also has that kind of following, especially with a lot of his views about inflation and hyperinflation and collapse. So you kind of have two polar opposite viewpoints here that both generally enjoy a lot of retail support. It's interesting to see them now going head to head. And then there are that argue that uh, Burry hasn't been as accurate in a lot of his calls as of late, but it's still maybe too early in his defense to to say he's wrong. But this is, you know, it's a a game that's often played right on Wall Street. Who's going to be right? Who's going to call it? Let's throw some numbers out. But uh, he's putting his money where his mouth is, and she's sticking with hers. And it's so high profile. We're going to find out one way or the other. One of them is going to be right in in a dramatic fashion. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsonevelis. Meantime, the first half of 2021 has seen nearly $57 billion flow into the relatively less exciting muni market. But one investor has his own dire warning if Congress fails to extend the debt ceiling. We'll tell you about that. The home builders are also down today after sentiment in the home building community sunk to its lowest level in a year. The ETF tracking group, the XHB, it's on pace for its worst day in over a month with DR Horton, Toll and Lennar all down nearly 5% right now. We'll tell you what's bringing down the builders when we come right back. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. We're just off session lows. Top of the hour, Dow is down 501 points, down 475. Pretty even declines across the major averages today of about 1.3% right now. The Nasdaq is underperforming, though, with about a 1.4% drop. Let's get down to Times Square, where Josh Lipton is checking on the biggest movers there. Josh. So, Kelly, let's start with some of those big tech names like Amazon, which is in the red here. It's down now about 15% from its 52-week high and now negative, by the way, for 2021. Alphabet, check out that name, also in the red in today's trade. But keep in mind, of course, with that name, what a run, up about 55% so far in 2021. Check out the chips, too. So NVIDIA, Applied Materials, NXP are all lower. NVIDIA, remember, reporting results tomorrow after the close. And we can end here on some of those Chinese tech names like JD.com and Baidu also trading lower. Kelly, back to you. Josh, thank you very much. Josh Lipton. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The United Nations is responding guardedly to Taliban pledges to protect women's rights and not seek revenge on people who oppose it. A U.N. spokesman saying that the Taliban must follow up with acts on the ground to show that it is keeping its promises. Meantime, in Wisconsin, the Fort McCoy Army base preparing to receive refugees from Afghanistan. The Defense Department predicts up to 22,000 people could come to the U.S. in the next few weeks. Fort Bliss in Texas also being considered as a temporary site to receive refugees. Grace is now moving toward Mexico after dropping as much as 10 inches of rain on Haiti. Many people in Haiti are still looking for medical help and shelter after this weekend's magnitude 7.2 earthquake. And tonight, getting aid to Haiti and helping thousands who lost their homes get back on their feet. That, of course, airs tonight on the news at 7 p.m. Eastern. And take a look at this video in the nation's capital. A perfect view as lightning 
strikes the Washington Monument. Take a look. You can see the camera shake there, and then there it goes. It happened over the weekend. The monument is closed, Kelly, for electrical repairs, but it almost looks unreal. Yeah, that is something. Maybe they can show it one more time. Here we go. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Something out of a movie. Yeah, Rahel, thank you. Well, recent IPOs are causing woes. We'll have more of those stories in today's Rapid Fire. Wish, Roblox, that reopening wreck. You can also uh, find out what David Tepper's doing in his latest 13F filings. Is all of this telling us maybe a warning signal about froth in the market? We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down some pretty broken down names, Leslie Picker, Bob Bassani, and Gina Sanchez are with us. Gina's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Uh, welcome to all of you. Again, on a day when the markets uh, had a pretty spoiled tone, let's start with what, what's going on in Wish. You might know him from the Lakers jersey patch. I mean, at least for me, that was how I knew him. Anyway, uh, the online marketplace company is down 20% in just the past two days after a drop in sales, a wider than expected loss. And the CEO penning a shareholder letter that was anything but optimistic, writing that daily user activity and active buyers on our platform declined more than we had anticipated, particularly in the U.S., France, and Italy, three of our largest markets. Again, that was the CEO. He wasn't very bullish on their turnaround plans either, saying, quote, we don't expect these new initiatives to contribute meaningfully to positive year-over-year results before the second half of 2022. The stock making a slight recovery today, but it's nowhere near its $31 high set in February. It's under about $7 now. Bob, what does this one tell you? You're going to hear the same refrain for all of these companies. It's not necessarily the companies are bad. It's that the prices were too high initially. We've had a runaway IPO in SPAC marketplace in the first half of the year. And now we're starting to question that. The highest prices for most of these companies were right at the open. Here specifically, what do you got? You've got a company, an online marketplace. There is a ton of competitors out there. This is what you call a no-moat company. There's nothing around it that's going to protect it. So the users are very unsticky. They can go away very, very quickly. And that's what you're seeing here. But the real problem remains the high prices. Look at that price for that, that, that company there. Gene, I'm curious, you know, after a stock like this, Bob said, if it was mispriced at the highs, at what point does the price become more attractive at the lows? Or does it go back to some of the discussions we've had about value stocks, which we were talking about this with Tyler last week. It's not so much that they're overlooked. It's that people looked at them and said, yeah, no, I'm not going near that. Well, I think this one is one that benefited from the hype. And the second look is basically the stories that you're hearing is that there's poor quality control. There's longer than expected delivery times. When there's no moat, like Bob just said, and he really hit the nail on the head, then you've got a company that can't defend if they can't deliver. And that's basically what's happening. And they also, Leslie, talked about how their advertising costs are up as a result. Because, again, it's hard to kind of keep the consumer mindshare, especially when you're up against the likes of Amazon. And in the post-pandemic world, when they say, you know, they just quite didn't have people locked in their houses as much. And I, not to draw too much, uh, you know, from one to the other, but this story that you've been reporting on today about Bill Ackman's SPAC problems as well and the SEC going after that, another area where retail investors were super interested in the story for a while until that one has just completely fallen apart. Oh, that's right. I mean, this is a story that, you know, they went public back in December, and it's the perfect case study for past performance is not indicative of future results. This and a lot of companies that went public last year showed some really, really strong results from the pandemic era where people were staying at home, they were shopping online, but management itself in this quarter cited consumer mobility as one of a big 
the big reasons that they really missed on all metrics. Yeah, so it'll be up to them now to prove if they have a, you know, a more sustainable way uh, to get those eyeballs. Let's move along, though, and talk next about what's going on with shares of Roblox in the red after brutal second quarter results. This is the online gaming platform, of course, they missed on bookings. That's a key measure for sales. They had a wider than expected loss of 25 cents a share. Daily active users did jump to more than 46 million in July. That was up about 4 million or so from the first quarter. And with a new lockdown in New Zealand and the extension of Japan's just today, well, maybe that could give stocks like Roblox another boost. Gina, what do you say? But this is a company that definitely benefited from the, pan- from the pandemic. And so, of course, as the as we see any kind of easing in terms of, you know, stay at home measures or just sort of, you know, people being cooped, no longer being cooped up in their houses, going out, starting to shop, starting to go to restaurants. This form of entertainment is going to be more challenging. And you're seeing that happen. Um, I agree with you that, in fact, maybe potential lockdowns might be a benefit, but we're not going to be locked down forever. Um, so you have to this company has to find what its actual comparables are. And right now, they're just comparing against strong numbers. Yeah, Bob, this is something I was talking to Dom about at the top of the hour. But you have companies like Roblox, Home Depot, Lowe's, who benefited from the stay at home moment for the consumer. We're talking about Delta kind of throwing a wrench into the works here. Why aren't these stocks getting some kind of second wind on that? Well, they, uh, the answer is they are getting a little bit. Home Depot has held up tremendously all throughout the year. It's up uh, 20, 26 percent on the year, something mm-hmm. like that, maybe a little less this year. So it's outperformed the S&P 500 on the year and it's outperformed it over the last couple of years. So it, it, it's, it has held up very well. But it, all of this is still subject to the peak everything story. And in the case of Wish, in, in the case of Roblox, this is not Home Depot. This is a company where, again, the stickiness is a real problem. The same thing with Wish. These users can move around very, very easily with these game platforms and it's not going to matter that much. If you look at the actual numbers on the company, the earnings estimates have been declining on this for a while now, and they're significantly lower than they were earlier in the year. They're, and they've been, if you look out in the further years, they're lower, actually. So, I, again, I get back to the question of valuation, which is not easy to figure out with a company like this that's relatively new and obviously has a few dedicated users. But I think stickiness is a real problem also. And that's a great point about the earnings declining. You know, usually we see the opposite, um, but not in this case. All right, let's move on to another banana peel. It's been a rough ride for the Honest Company. Shares of Jessica Alba's beauty and baby care biz seeing a small bump today, but after plummeting 28% on Friday after they whiffed on second quarter results. Bank of America analysts blame the weak numbers in part on Amazon, which cut $6 million of inventory for Prime Day and people not buying as many cleaning products compared with 2020. So the shares popped on the first day of trading, if you remember when they debuted back in May, but they are down more than 50% since, Leslie. Yeah, they've got some inventory reduction issues here. Consumers spending less on sanitation, as you mentioned. And then kind of a similar situation with Wish. People are going back and they're buying things brick and mortar. People are buying makeup. They're buying beauty things in store again in a way that they really weren't doing back in 2020. And so if we're going to be honest here and we're going to level set, you know, it changes the risk profile of a company like Honest Company. Uh, Gina, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. Well, again, this not only did the company have to reset expectations, and I hate to keep beating on this, but the pricing is a problem. It priced at $16. When was it? Early part of May, right? It 
the highest price for this stock was the open. It was $23.88, and it's been essentially down from there. So in behavioral economics, you know this, because there's this thing called anchoring, where the where you think the stock should be is kind of where you saw it initially. So everybody has this $23 price, and it seems like a huge disappointment. But obviously, the stock was overvalued. Investors got too enthusiastic. It was never worth that much. This is probably closer to what the honest evaluation of the company is. I'm not blaming the company. They're doing fine. I think mm-hmm. they, they seem like a very a decent company. It's investors. And this is part of the problem. They're really going to push back in the second half of the year against the pricing because everyone made money on the first day on these IPOs and then lost money every day after that, practically. That's yeah. a problem. And I want to get to this Beachbody story. But first, Gina, what I was going to ask you is, if all of these stocks are not necessarily names, and this reminds me a little bit of what's happening in China as well, where these stocks are doing horrifically, where do you... Where does value present itself if it's not going to be in those names and it's not going to be in this name? These, I mean, where is it then? You know, people are looking for things that people have to keep buying. You see defensive names. You know, we, we've actually seen there was a little bit of this sort of, you know, desire to own growthier names for about two months. And then that just flattened out as the Delta variant came out. And what you found was that the stuff that was performing Kelly was the stuff that people need, uh, the more defensive stuff, things, companies that have a moat. Um, and, and, you know, the, that's, those are absolutely the right kind of elements that stock, that stock pickers right now are looking for. They're looking for companies that can defend uh, their company, something that one single move by Amazon isn't going to wipe out your entire revenue stream. Yeah. Those are the things that matter. All right. All right. That's a great point. Now, we always go through these 13F filings when we get them every quarter and you go, OK, they bought this. They bought... Well, what is Beachbody? David Tepper uh, has made a big bet on that, disclosing a large stake in Appaloosa's latest 13F filing. Beachbody reported a wider than expected loss last week, blamed the setback in part on a delay in its SPAC deal, which deferred investments and postponed its exercise bike launch. The CEO, Sue Collins, says they're now well positioned to execute strategies. They upped guidance. The shares are actually climbing today, but they are down 35 percent, Leslie, since going public on that three-way merger with a SPAC backed by Shaquille O'Neal. So somehow this story feels emblematic to me of like everything we've just been discussing. But David Tepper's in on it, so I go, maybe this is legit. I don't know. I totally agree, although I will say that this company despacked, I think it was five days before the end of the quarter. He bought 2 million shares, $21 million at the end of the quarter. It's unclear if he held on to it in the six weeks since then. If so, that stake would be down to about $15.5 million thanks to a slump. But a really interesting point here, this idea that a delay in getting that merger done impacted their marketing spend and therefore impacted their earnings Will they correct that over time remains to be seen. But I think that is a good lesson for a lot of these companies that are looking to tie up with a SPAC uh, as a way to get public. It can have demonstrable impact on your bottom line. Yeah, and uh, Gina and Bob just shaking their heads. I think the message there is caveat investor (laughs) for some of these deals. High, High print again. At the open first day. Wow. All right. Bob Bassani, Gina Sanchez, Leslie Picker, thank you all very, very much for this edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Yellen warning the failure to extend the debt ceiling would cause irreparable harm to the economy and the livelihoods of all Americans. And with near record inflows into the muni market this year, one investor basically agrees and says the impact could last a generation or more. We'll tell you about it next.
Welcome back. Nearly $57 billion has flowed into muni bonds in the first six months of the year. That's the most for any first half in nearly 30 years, according to Refinitiv Lipper. But a congressional failure to extend the debt ceiling limit this fall could have a big impact on that money. My next guest says if the ceiling isn't raised, it'll cause a ripple effect that could roll through the world financial system and make the financial crisis of 2008 look like a three-minute G-rated movie trailer. And it could be disastrous for the muni market if U.S. creditworthiness is questioned. So <laughs> with that trailer, Tom Kozlik is here joining me to discuss. He's head of municipal research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. I, I mean, Tom, I think the point you're trying to make is, look, if we defaulted on our debt, all of that would come to pass. But every time we go through this exercise, we never really get to that point. Is this time different? Uh, let's hope it's not. Let's hope that uh, the base case, if anything, is something that is a 11th hour agreement. Uh, but even in an 11th hour agreement, we saw some pretty significant uh, market-wide and municipal market implications uh, back in the summer of 2011. Such as? So one of the things from the municipal market we saw is after the uh, ratings downgrade from S&P, there was a ripple effect uh, where credit was concerned. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I, I could see happening if there is some kind of recognition by rating agencies or a rating agency, number one, number two, one of the other things that I'm uh, concerned about from a municipal market perspective is the just the level of uncertainty where something like this is concerned. You were just talking about the uh, the demand uh, that we've seen for municipals over the last couple of months. I would be very concerned if there would be a that there could be a supply and demand imbalance, something similar to what we saw last year when issuers really accelerated the uh, the sales of their issues before the election. So draw the line for me between the Treasury sort of not paying the debt or, or something and it affecting the muni bond market. Explain the relationship there. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the first things and one of the reasons, one of the key reasons that I started paying as close attention to this over the last couple of weeks is just because, first of all, I think that because of how much uh, kind of political theater there's been going on in Washington, one of the things that I wanted to communicate to investors is that this is not just political theater. And you know, just to specifically answer your question, the, uh, with all of the things that are happening with regard to the, uh, you know, now it's not just a potential fourth wave, this is a fourth wave. I'm concerned that the, uh, the political in and out and or the, and or the political and market uh, volatility that could result from this and the uncertainty coupled with what, we're, what we could be seeing with revenue bonds and stress in revenue bonds over the next couple of months uh, could really pose a problem for uh, municipal investors. All right. So I'm also thinking about the timeline on this. I think it was Lou Wrightson, who, um, whoever the analyst is who follows this, the cash flows very closely, has moved up his timeline from debt ceiling to late October to early October. So we're talking maybe about six weeks time to figure this out. Right. So the CBO, so the CBO studies uh, identified that it could be as early as October 1st, maybe going to November. On the other hand, there could be some uncertainty there. There, You know, it could end up being even sooner than October. And so, you know, the fact that we just don't have a, a specific drop dead date yet is uh, a, a, an issue of concern. Uh, but then again, you know, whatever ends up happening uh, combined with the other political issues that are going on in Washington right now where is something that I'm concerned about. Do you think people should buy any backup in muni yields that's created as a result of, of this? So whether that's whether or not it's related to the debt ceiling or even the situation where uh, we see, you know, I'm already reading news about some schools closing in Texas and Georgia, for example. Uh, this fourth wave 
it could end up being a, a, a credit issue going into the uh, fall. Uh, where geos are concerned, I'm not as troubled. It's really in the revenue sectors that I think, whether it be healthcare or higher ed uh, or mass transit or other transportation bonds, I think that is where uh, I think there could be some credit stress. That being said, I think one of the things that investors learned over the last couple of months, if not going back to last year, is that municipal bond credit is pretty resilient. Well, because they might ultimately be backed up by the federal government? I wouldn't necessarily say that. I'd say just because uh, a combination of the cap, I think, well, first of all, the the relief from the federal government, especially the $650 billion of relief we saw in the Rescue Plan Act, definitely definitely helps support munis for sure. But I think that also, especially where GEO is concerned, uh, the security pledges have, have uh, shown that they're pretty strong and pretty resilient. All right, Tom, thank you very, very much for kind of examining a lot of the different sides of this issue. We appreciate it. Tom Coslick with Hilltop Securities. Still ahead, home builder sentiment falling to its lowest level in a year, despite the drop in lumber prices. What's behind it next? And as we head to break, let's check back on the markets. The Dow was down 501 at the top of the hour. We're nearing those declines again, about six points away from that level. Nasdaq's down 1.5%. We're back in a moment. Digging into discretionary Under Armour, DPH, she said, PPH, Gap and Tesla are the biggest laggers. Look at Tesla down another 5%. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Shares of the home builder ETF, the XHB, are falling today after the NAHB housing market index dropped five points to its lowest level since last year. KB Homes, Taylor Morrison, and Pulte are all down about 5% right now. Diana Olick is here with more behind the decline. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, the issue is rising costs for materials, which then means higher costs for the homes and sticker shock for home buyers. So builder sentiment dropped to the lowest reading in just over a year. But the index's three components are really telling. Current sales conditions fell five points to 81. Buyer traffic also fell five points to 60. Only sales expectations in the next six months was unchanged at 81. And that last one is probably because builders know that demand is still high and they may hope that costs will level off. But again, the price of lumber has come down dramatically, down over 72 percent from its peak in May. But the price and availability of other building materials remains a challenge. That includes flooring, drywall, appliances and windows. And as a result, new home prices are way up. Just about 56 percent of new and existing homes sold in the second quarter were affordable to families earning the U.S. median income. That's down sharply from the first quarter when just over 63 percent of homes were affordable. It's also the lowest affordability level since the beginning of the NHB's revised series that started in 2012. And you can even see it in the Mortgage numbers, mortgage applications to buy newly built homes were down 27 percent in July from a year ago. So you can see where that demand is falling off, Kelly. Yeah, big plunge in the University of Michigan, uh, home buying plans as well. And even uh, speaking with people in my town anecdotally who are involved in real estate, they say they think that prices have gotten too high. So what happens next? Well, we see what the home builder supply starts to look like. If they can ramp up production, you know, they had slowed production because of these higher costs for materials. And if those material prices are coming down, especially for lumber, then perhaps they can ramp up production. The more supply, then you have demand leveling off a little bit with supply and prices can pull back a little bit. We're not saying prices are going to go down, but the gains will shrink and that will help home buyers get back into the market. All right, Kelly. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick with the very latest. And sticking with that home builder sentiment report, Peter. Bookvar says it could be a red flag for the Fed. He joins me next with the Dow down 468.
Welcome back to the exchange. Stocks are on edge today, but just off session lows, we were down 501 about an hour ago. And the big question is what's driving today's broad-based declines of the week? Data, tapering concerns, Delta worries, or are they all tied up together? Joining me now is Peter Bookvar. He's the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, stagflation is a term you're throwing around. Well, all the factors that you just mentioned are definitely weighing on markets with the backdrop of deteriorating breath that we've seen over the past month. But I think stagflation is an overriding worry in addition to the tapering that we keep hearing about. If you look at every single major correction in the, mar- in the equity market since 2010, outside of COVID and the Chinese currency de- devaluation in August 2015, it, it all was around Fed tapering, Fed tightening, raising interest rates. 2010, QE ended, we sold off about 20%. QE2 ended the the next year, we sold off about 20%. QE3 ended, we had a 10% correction. The Fed started raising rates December 2015, we sold off the first few months of 2016. Of course, the fourth quarter of 2018 when Powell kept raising interest rates. So that exposes a lot of weaknesses elsewhere. And I think stagflation is really the the key story here that uh, people are now beginning uh, to, to, to get around on. Right. And your point being, so there's not, it's kind of the way that you go, yes, there's inflation and yes, there's a slowing economy. And those two things kind of uncomfortably coexist for this period of time, especially with Delta going on. But let's talk about the Fed reaction function that you just described. So are you basically saying, look, if people point to the markets as a reason for the Fed to delay the taper, they're getting the the, ser- the sequence wrong, that anytime the Fed backs away, we're going to expect a market correction, but it's just something you work through? Well, yeah, then that's going to get us to a very interesting moment in time. So let's just say the Fed begins this taper in, in September or, or November, December meeting, and you do get an equity market sell-off, but you still have elevated inflation. What is the Fed going to respond to? Are they going to react and, and, and stop tapering because the equity market's down? Or are they going to continue to follow through because they feel like they need to contain inflation? And I do believe that we are headed towards one of those moments where they're going to have to pick a choice and where they're going to go on that road. Right. So what, you know, there's a couple of other factors going on as well. When we talked to Dave Dave Zervos yesterday, he said, look, don't overlook the fact that Powell is up for reappointment in a few months, a couple of the vice chairs as well in the months ahead, that it's not usually politically that popular to go, yeah, I know inflation's really, you know, hurting people at home, but, uh, you know, we're going to sort of have a take it slow approach here. How do you think the politics could affect their decision on the taper, which they've just started to lay the groundwork for? Well, I think after everything we've heard from a variety of different members, it's going to be tough to avoid not beginning something uh, in September or November the latest. Uh, But to David's point, I'm sure politics are definitely an influence here. Uh, Since February 2022, someone's going to be the new chair or the existing chair. But I don't think we're going to necessarily wait until February for that decision to be made. I think it's possible it happens before Thanksgiving. And that's just when the taper is just beginning. So I don't think one should necessarily influence the other uh, as much as maybe some people would think. But I can't imagine it would play well with Congress for the Fed to start tapering and then scrap it. Yeah, that's not going to look good. But that's the problem that the Fed has, is that this inflation story is not just a a theoretical discussion. This is now a Main Street issue. This is to the point where you now have Congress people that are writing letters to Jay Powell like Manchin did, saying, okay, we have a potential inflation problem here. And this is an experience that the current Federal Reserve, the modern-day central banking, has not had to deal with. And are they going to focus on the stag, 
or are they going to focus on deflation? <laughs> we'll leave everybody with that image. Peter, thank you. It's good to see you today. Peter Bookvar with the Bleakley Advisory Group. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.